Well, again, thank you all for being here. It is a couple minutes after seven, so I want to get started. And as always, just want to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into uh, what the Lord has for us tonight. Heavenly Father, as always, we want to thank you so much for just the incredible faithfulness and kindness and goodness that you show us. Thank you, Lord God, for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for providing us a way uh, to be in relationship with you, uh, to be in fellowship with you through your son, the incredible sacrifice he became for us, and all that has happened, the incredible blessings that have been poured into our lives because of his death and his resurrection. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to consider you, to consider your word, to consider the things that you teach us through your word, particularly, Father, as we look to the things that will unfold, the way that you have made clear to us in scripture, what is taking place right now and what will take place in the future. And Father, we realize that your church is in great disagreement over a lot of the details and over a lot of the, the smaller aspects of these things. And so, Father God, we just pray that you would really give us your heart to focus on what is most important, to emphasize on what is clear, and ultimately, Lord, just to trust you, to trust you and to remember, Lord God, that everything will happen in accordance with your plan and with your purpose. And as we see these things fulfilled, we will be even more amazed at your faithfulness and just at your power to always do what you say that you will do. And so we thank you for that. And so, Father, just in the time that we have together tonight, we just pray that you would be powerfully present through your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be speaking to us and that each one of us would have ears to hear what it is he is saying to us. And we ask all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want to do to open things tonight is just to conclude our discussion of the intermediate state. And again, I assume that most of you have it. Does everyone have uh, the sheet that we handed out a couple times ago? This is the second sheet that says the intermediate state part two. Um, if you don't have it, I do have a couple of extra copies. Does anyone need that? We're only going to do a couple of the verses from the bottom. But if anyone needs that, I have that. Does anyone need that? We all have that. Okay. Who needs a copy? Howard, you do. This is the sheet, the second sheet that we were working on together last time. We got through most of it. But we're just going to, like I say, work on the verses at the bottom. Do you need a copy of this either? Abelio, do you have one? Okay. So when we were talking about the intermediate state, we spent some time talking about this concept that's given to us in the Old Testament, the concept of Sheol. And really all that we were saying is the concept of Sheol is just the idea from the Old Testament perspective that life does not end when someone dies physically. Life does not end when someone dies physically. You continue to exist. You continue to live as a person without your body in the realm of Sheol. 
And we said there's not a lot of detail that's given to us about that in the Old Testament, but there was clearly the understanding that when someone died physically, they continued to exist. That was not the end. We saw passages where both the righteous and the wicked go to Sheol, but we saw that for the Old Testament believer, particularly in the Psalms when David was writing, there was a great hope that there would be a rescue from Sheol, that they would be saved out of Sheol. So there was a hope for the future, just not as clearly laid out as what we understand now that we are living in New Testament times. And so remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So Sheol is a Hebrew word. And then later, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, oh, Sorry, Carl's doing a little This coming through now? Much better. So, Carl, you were supposed to make me sound better. You made me sound worse. Wow. So, remember what we said is that when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek word Hades was used to translate the word Sheol. So initially, do I need to switch back now? Test, test, test. No. Does it sound the same? Oh, so I guess it was not an issue of batteries. Do you want me to keep going with this one though? Okay. So when the New Testament, excuse me, when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the word Hades was used to translate the word Sheol. So if you were reading the Old Testament in Greek and came across the word Hades, it wouldn't necessarily have a negative connotation to it. In the time between the Testaments, in the time between the last writing of the Old Testament and then the arrival of Christ and the writing of the New Testament, the understanding of Hades changed a little bit. And it became the place of punishment for the wicked. So by the writing of the New Testament, as the word Hades is used in the New Testament, it became the place of punishment of the wicked. And so we looked particularly at the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, where there is a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And in the parable, they both die. The rich man goes to Haiti, which is a place of torment. And Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. That's the only place in scripture where the realm that we're going to look at now is referred to as the bosom of Abraham. But it is a place of comfort. So what we are seeing is that as the arrival of Christ happens, and as the writings of the New Testament take place after Christ returns to the Father, we are seeing an expansion of the understanding of Sheol, because now there is clearly a distinction between what happens to the wicked dead. They go to Hades, where they are punished but they are there awaiting 
final judgment. Then we have the fate of the righteous dead from Luke chapter 16. They're called a place of comfort or the bosom of Abraham. Now, one of the things that we said, and we're going to get into it a little bit more later, is that in the New Testament, there is a distinction between Hades and hell. Hell is the English translation of the Greek word Gehenna. And we're not going to take the time tonight to get into the background of it. But Hades is the place where the wicked dead are punished temporarily. Because again, they are awaiting final judgment. Final judgment takes place when Jesus Christ returns. And so we looked particularly at the verse on the sheet, 2 Peter 2.9. Even though it doesn't use the word Hades, it talks about God keeping the unrighteous in a place of punishment awaiting final judgment. So hell then is the place of final and eternal punishment on the other side of final judgment. And we will talk about that more, like I say, once we start to talk about the things that happen when Jesus Christ returns. So Hades in the New Testament is the place of temporary punishment for the wicked and hell or Gehenna is the place of eternal punishment for the wicked on the other side of final judgment we will argue that hell even though it's not used in revelation in this passage this is the lake of fire that appears in revelation chapter 20 okay so last time, we didn't actually have time to read a bit more of what the New Testament has to say happens to the believer who dies before the return of Jesus Christ. We've looked at Luke chapter 16, the parable, and Lazarus was taken to the bosom of Abraham, and there he was comforted. Um, the first verse there on the sheet uh, excuse me, the second verse on the sheet, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. This is where Jesus is talking to one of the thieves on the cross. And remember, the thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. So there Jesus is giving the designation paradise to that place of comfort that those who die putting their trust in Christ go to upon their death. Let's read a couple of these other passages together. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. Excuse me, 21 to 23. Do we have someone who is willing to volunteer to read those verses for us. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. 
You mind if I read it, Elliot, since we don't have the mic yet? Um, so this is Philippians uh, 1, 21 to 23. The Apostle Paul writes, for me, for to me, to live as Christ and to me yet what shall i choose i do not know i am torn between the two i desire to depart and be with christ which is better by far so as the apostle paul is contemplating the reality that he may be executed he is absolutely certain that if he dies he will depart and he will be with christ or be present with the Lord. So again, this is another way the New Testament puts this place or what happens to the believer if we die before the return of Christ. So in one place, it's referred to as the bosom of Abraham. In another place, uh, Jesus refers to it as paradise. In Philippians, uh, Paul says, if I depart, I will be with the Lord. And let's just read one more passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. This is also on the bottom. Elliot, do you want to try reading that one? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay. So here the Apostle Paul just gives two possible choices. Either we are at home with the body and away from the Lord, or we are away from the body and we are at home or we are present with the Lord. Again, different translations, English translations will take that either way, to be at home with the Lord or to be present with the Lord. But again, Paul makes it clear that as soon as you are not at home in your body. Remember, we talked about physical death is your spirit or your soul leaving your physical body. So as soon as that occurs, at the moment that you die physically, at the moment that you are now not at home in your body anymore, you go to be home or go to be in the presence of the Lord. Okay? So the great assurance that we have when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we are giving everything that we have to him, the great assurance that we have is that if we do not live to see his return, at the moment that we die physically, we will immediately be taken into the presence of the Lord. And it is a place of comfort. It is a place of being more closely connected with the Lord. We are away from the Lord when we are at home in the body. So there is a distance that we have right now. That's why Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight.
but the great assurance that we have is there is no interim where we are in a third place or we become unconscious. You know, for quite a few years, the church used to talk about something they referred to as soul sleep, that when a believer dies, they just simply become unconscious until the return of Jesus Christ. That's not what the New Testament teaches at all. So it is absolutely appropriate and thoroughly biblical for us to find great hope and great encouragement in knowing that those whom we love, who died knowing and loving the Lord, are with the Lord right now. They are with the Lord right now. That is the great assurance, the great confidence that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament gives us. Okay? So before we go on to some new material, are there any comments or questions about any of this? Clear as mud? Clear as Okay. So what we're going to talk about next is the return of Jesus Christ. And did everyone grab the sheet that was on the table as you came in? Because this is the sheet that we're going to be using tonight. I think it just says at the top, the return of Jesus Christ, right? And it says the greatest hope of the New Testament. I did not. Sorry, Carl. Remember when we were doing an introduction into etology, we spent some time at some old testament passages that look forward to things that would come. And remember, they were looking forward to that time when Messiah would come into the world, when the one that they had been waiting for, the one who would save, the one who would deliver, the one who would take up the throne of David and rule as king not only over Israel, but over the entire cosmos. So there was an incredible hope in the Old Testament that Messiah would come. So this is a timeline. Remember, the Old Testament was looking forward. And so, of course, as we know, Jesus came. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. And that's why we are living in the age of fulfillment. That's why we are living in the end of the ages or in the final days. Because that is absolutely what Jesus Christ inaugurated when he came 2,000 years ago. But what we also understand is that this is not the end. That is tension between the already and the not yet. The glorious things that we are experiencing right now as Jesus came once and, and the future things that we are waiting to experience because Jesus Christ will come a second time. So are, we are living in sort of this in-between age. And the New Testament now looks in both directions. 
The New Testament looks back to all that Jesus accomplished when he came into the world the first time. But the New Testament also looks forward with great excitement and expectation to the return of Jesus Christ. And of course, this was something that the Old Testament looked to as well. And oftentimes fused together things that Jesus has already accomplished because that he will push when he comes second time and the prophets had no problem doing that because for them these were all things that were in the future for them and these were all things that would happen when messiah comes into the world so for us we understand that there is a period of time now that separates and so some things have been fulfilled some things are awaiting to be fulfilled and again, that's why we have this concept of already and not yet. But the great, great hope of the New Testament is the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, that be argued that almost every one of the 27 books of the New Testament or two reference to the return of Jesus Christ. That's how central it is. And for us, we want to think of it not in terms of, oh, Revelation is so complicated and the church disagrees so much about how this age is going to end. And there's so many different understandings within the believing church of the details. Oftentimes, when we think about the return of Jesus Christ, these are some of the thoughts that come into our mind. You know, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'll never be able to understand that stuff. Or there's so much disagreement or it confuses me. Or there's just so much that I... And, and again, we want to kind of just push that to the side. Because there is incredible power in the simplicity of just absolutely believing and focusing on the fact that Jesus Christ will come again. Now, there is absolute place in biblical studies to dive into some of the complexities to the book of Revelation or to study some other passages that start to deal with maybe some of the things that the church is in disagreement over or some of the details that maybe become a little harder for us to understand completely. There is a place for that, but we don't ever want that to diminish just the incredible power of of knowing and believing that Jesus Christ will come again. And that should give us hope every day. You know, every day we should wake up in the morning and say, wow, I can get up today because Jesus Christ is coming again. You know, I can deal with all of the discouragement, with all of the opposition, with all of the wearying nature of this life, I can deal with everything that's trying to destroy me and drag me down. I can deal with all of the horrific news that is out there constantly bombarding me. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming again. This is absolutely how the New Testament church thought. That's why almost every book of the New Testament makes a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. And they weren't saying, 
you know, hey, are you a, a pre-trib, pre-mill, or are you an amill? Or you no, they weren't. They weren't concerned about it. what they realized is, wow, we are living in a really brutal time. We are living in the Roman Empire, and at a time the Roman Empire treated Christians horrifically, and the thing that absolutely gave them greater hope than anything else was not that their boss was going to treat them nice, not that they were going to get a promotion, not that their neighbors would behave, not that, you know, no, their hope was not in any of that stuff. The thing that actually gave them greater hope than anything else was the firm conviction that Jesus Christ is coming again. And 2,000 years later, we as believers need to be living the same way. You know, the truth of it is, the situation at work may not work out. Your neighbors may continue to drive you crazy. People may continue to do awful things. In fact, later on, we'll, we'll see that Jesus guarantees us that that's the case. But none of that can diminish hope that we have if our hope is Jesus Christ is coming again. That's the unquenchable hope of every follower of Jesus. Because things in this world, from one perspective, they are going to get worse. And a lot of things in this life, this side of the return of Jesus Christ, are not going to get resolved. And so if we're putting our hope in other things, then eventually that hope is going to disappoint us. Because the one thing we have that will absolutely keep us full of hope is the conviction, the assurance that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that's what we want to hold on to. You know, at the end of our eschatology class, whenever we finish a couple months from now, I really don't care whether you end up bringing a pre-mill or a post-mill or an amill or a pre-trib pre-mill or a mid-trib pre-mill. Ultimately, I don't care. You can make a decision about that, and we'll talk about that eventually. But what I do care about more than anything else is that you have that unshakable assurance that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that in any circumstance you find yourself, that's giving you hope. That's giving you hope. That's what we need to take home. That's what we need to take home is that Jesus Christ is coming again, and because he is coming again, I have unshakable hope. That's why I put on the top here, it is the greatest hope of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is coming again. So let's look at a couple of the passages here that just reinforce that. Would someone read for us John chapter 14, Verse 3, John chapter 14, verse 3. This is a very well-known passage. In fact, some of you maybe can quote it from memory. But John chapter 14, verse 3. Does someone have that for us? Thank you, Elliot. Can you grab the microphone? Hopefully it's working. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also 
may be where I am. Right there, right? Now, obviously, most of us realize, if not all of us, that in John chapter 14, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. In fact, this is the night that he's going to be betrayed and handed over, and the next day he will die on the cross. So he is preparing his disciples for this incredibly shocking turn of events. It's not shocking to Jesus. It's not shocking to the Father. This is the plan from all eternity past. But it will absolutely be shocking to the disciples. The disciples have not even begun to wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus is going to die on a cross. They just, they have no category for that. Even though three times Jesus has told them, the Son of Man is going to be handed over and he's going to die on a cross. They still have no category. So he's trying to prepare them for this. And he's trying to encourage them. And look at what he puts in there as a word of encouragement. The day before he is going to die on the cross, what hope is he giving them? That I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and take you with me. So here, we're just on the brink of this. This is just about to happen. And what is one of the incredible, tangible lines of hope that Jesus is giving his followers? It's this. I'm going to go away. After I die and rise, I'm going to return to the Father, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you with me. So right there is this incredible hope that Jesus is giving that he's going to come back, that he's going to come back. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus now has died, body in the tomb for three days. He's risen. He's appeared to his disciples for some 40 days, giving them many signs of, of him actually being Jesus and not being some sort of hoax or ghost or, you know, whatever else people come up with. And in Acts chapter 1, he actually returns to the Father. But what does it say in Acts chapter 1, verse 11? Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Is someone willing to read that for us? Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Thank you, Libby. And this is uh, the angels speaking. Jesus. Oh. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Right there. So the incredible distress now that the disciples are feeling, because there was unbelievable joy in realizing that Jesus was alive in touching him and eating meals with him and hanging out with him and spending these 40 days with him. Now there was incredible joy, but here they are standing in Galilee and Jesus is going up into heaven. He's being taken from them. And so again, now there's a new challenge. There's a new possible distress. So the angels that appear say, look, you know, why are you standing there looking up into heaven? Well, I mean, it would be hard to do anything else. I mean, if you're with the risen Jesus 
and you're there at that moment that he's returning to the father, it certainly would be hard. You know, you wouldn't be looking at, you know, the folks walking by or, you know, a mountain range. But anyways, the angels are like, hey, what are you doing? But what, what do they assure the disciples? That in the same way that he was taken from you, he will come back. So just as Jesus left this earth and was taken up into heaven, he will return. He will come down from heaven and once again take up residence on earth. That's what we want to emphasize here. In the same way, in the same way, Jesus was taken up into heaven. That's how he went. That's how he left. He will come back in the same way. He will come down from heaven to the earth. That's the assurance that the angels were giving to the disciples at that point. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. And again, there's so many, so many examples, but we're just going to read a couple more here. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Is someone willing to read that one for us? Looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearance of our God, great God, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, what is our great hope? What are we looking for? Our great hope is what? What does Paul write Titus here in the verse that Howard just read for us? Exactly. The glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are waiting. That's another key concept that we're going to spend a bit of time talking about. We are waiting. We are waiting what? For our great hope, the greatest hope of the New Testament. We are waiting for what? The glorious appearance of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We walk by faith right now. We are apart from the Lord. As we just read in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith. But there is a time coming where Jesus will return in the same way that he was taken from us, and he will gloriously appear to all creation. That's what we are waiting for. That's what we are hoping for. That's what we are expecting. The glorious appearance of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, notice that Paul actually refers to Jesus as God. If you ever are having a challenge with the Trinity or trying to find a passage that speaks of the Trinity, that's a great one to go to. Last one that we're going to look at is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. I have Hebrews it, chapter 9, verse 28. I have it, David. Great. Okay. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So again, very much what we've already been seeing. Christ will appear a second time. The author of Hebrews here is emphasizing he will not appear the second time as a sacrifice for sin. He will appear a second time 
and bring to completion the work of salvation, again, for those who are waiting for him. So again, this idea of waiting. But we've already seen here in four books, John and Acts and Titus and Hebrews, but you can literally go to almost every book of the New Testament. I think maybe second or third John doesn't have a clear reference. I, I don't remember for sure, but it's constantly emphasized in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is coming again. That's our greatest hope. And again, without necessarily diving into all of the debated and discussed details, we want to hold on to that hope more than anything else, because that hope is profound, and it's simple, and it is absolutely what the Lord wants of us, to be absolutely convinced that Jesus is coming again. And as we wait for him, we wait with hope, we wait with excitement, we wait with everything that we need because God has given it to us to usher in the return of Jesus. Okay? Any questions about this opening section, the greatest hope of the New Testament? Yes, Ted. It's actually more of a comment, if you don't mind. The, I do mind. No, not at all. Please, Ted. <laughs> the, uh, the, one, the one chapter to me that jumps out the most about this kind of thing is First Peter chapter 1. And he talks about, um, he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And boy, that's a really powerful verse. But that whole chapter just really uh, hits the nail on the head exactly what you've been sharing in the other scriptures tonight. So that's First Peter chapter 1. Yeah, the whole chapter. That, that verse is toward the end of the chapter. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again... You know, I would encourage you as you're reading the New Testament to look for these references, because what you will find is it really is everywhere. Even if it's just, you know, maybe a phrase that's part of a larger or maybe sort of different point. It's just this is the constant focus on the horizon for the New Testament. Jesus Christ is coming again. It's there everywhere. And so again, in our daily life, this should not just be an afterthought. This should not just be something we think about because we're talking about it at the Wednesday eschatology study. You know, this really should be that anchor point of our life. It really should be what carries us through the hardest of circumstances. And so I think for a lot of us, myself included, this is a really good reminder that this really needs to be central in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our conversation, that Jesus Christ is coming again. Okay? Any other thoughts or questions about this opening section? Okay. So on the sheet that you have in front of you, the next is something that the New Testament also emphasizes frequently. And sometimes it's referred to, as I put it here, the return of Christ is soon. The return of Christ is close at hand. Sometimes people use the word, the return of Christ is imminent. Now, the challenge, of course, we have in understanding the New Testament's teaching on this is, you know, here we sit 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ, and Jesus still has not returned. 
So as we think in terms of maybe how we view imminent or soon or close at hand, we may say, wow, 2,000 years doesn't seem imminent or soon. You know, we may think if something is, is happening soon, that means it's happening today or it's happening tomorrow or it's happening next week. So we've got to really try to understand the New Testament on its own terms. For a couple of hundred years, critical biblical scholars have attacked the New Testament on this point. They have actually said that Jesus and the other New Testament authors were confused because they clearly understood that Jesus and Paul in particular spoke of the imminent return of Jesus. And so here they were sitting, you know, in the 1700s and the 1800s, and they were saying, well, Jesus has not returned, so they must have been confused, or they must have been mistaken. And there certainly are, in, in, in the Gospels in particular, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew, there are a couple of challenging passages where Jesus says, you know, this generation will not pass away until the Son of Man is revealed in his glory. I mean, so... It isn't just, you know, these guys are completely idiots, but we need to understand, of course, we are never going to come from a place where we are going to assume Jesus was confused or Jesus was mistaken or the Apostle Paul was confused or the Apostle Paul was mistaken. You know, these are the times where the scriptures are challenging us to think of something a little differently. You know, when something doesn't immediately make sense, or something maybe seems to be in tension with what we understand, or there seems to be conflict, these are opportunities for us to say, well, wait a second. God is never wrong. God is never confused. The scriptures are never wrong. The scriptures are never confused. So whatever is going on here, it's an opportunity for me to understand something a little bit better than I understand it right now. Because without any doubt, the New Testament repeatedly says that the return of Jesus Christ is close at hand. So let's look at a couple of passages that declare that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. Do we have a volunteer to read that? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse, thank you, Elliot. Yes. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Okay. So the first part of this verse is what we're gonna focus on. The second part is a little bit more challenging to understand. But the Apostle Paul, living 2,000 years ago, having just come to realize that the Messiah came into the world and died and rose and returned to the Father, and that he was coming again, he was able to describe that time in which he was living as the time is short. The time is short. And so what he actually says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that if you are able to, 
because of the urgency of the time in which they were living, you should live as if you have no attachments to this life. So if you're married, you should live as if you're not. If you're not married, you shouldn't pursue marriage. Now, of course, if we had time, we could dive into 1 Corinthians 7 and really unpack that, but we don't have time, at least because the time is short. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Now, now, Paul is not condemning marriage. Marriage is a gift from the Lord. Marriage is a blessing from the Lord. What Paul is saying is because of the urgency of the time, if you have the calling to remain single, you should. And you should be so focused on what is coming that you have no real attachments to anything in this life, okay? We can talk more about that at another time because it is a challenging, a, a challenging concept for a lot of us. But the main point is Paul is saying the time is short. Now, Jesus didn't come in 60 AD. Jesus didn't come in 70 AD. Jesus didn't come in 80 AD. So was Paul mistaken? Was Paul mistaken in describing the time as the time is short? Was he mistaken? Well, some critical scholars would say yes, because the Apostle Paul was convinced that maybe in 20, 30, 40 years, Jesus was going to come again. He didn't. Obviously, he didn't because we're still here. So if, if we don't believe that Paul was mistaken, then we've got to understand that one way of understanding the New Testament age, one way of understanding this entire period between the first coming of Christ and the return of Jesus Christ is this is a time of urgency. We should be living with a sense of urgency. That's part of what the New Testament is getting at when it says the return of Christ is imminent. The time is short. We don't have the luxury of wasting time. We don't have the luxury of becoming distracted. We don't have the luxury of becoming overly attached to the temporary things of this life. There is an urgency that should grip all of us as followers of Jesus, because the time is short. The time is short, okay? The next one, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Do we have someone who would volunteer to read that one for us? Philippians 4, 5. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you're ready. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. There's that phrase. Some translations say the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. So the Apostle Paul is saying, look, let your gentleness be on display to everyone. Be a good witness to Christ. Take advantage of the opportunity that you have to let Christ shine through you. Why? Because the Lord is near. So what we see here is that the absolute assurance of the return of Jesus Christ radically affects how I live today. You know, when I was in college, I heard some people teach that 
If you're completely focused on the return of Jesus, if you're completely focused on what is coming, you'll be no good today because you'll be so distracted with heaven that you're no good on earth. I, I don't know. That wasn't quite the way the phrase was. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That is just horrific theology. That's like the gutter theology because if you rightly understand this, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you are. The more that you are consumed with the return of Jesus Christ, and the more that you are convinced that his return is imminent, that his return is at hand, you are going to be devastatingly good on earth. So that, that's rubbish theology. Be heavenly-minded. You know, this is Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on things above. Because what, what the New Testament clearly understands is the more that we focus on this, the more we live each moment for Christ. And the more impact we have on those around us. As soon as we start to lose sight of this, as soon as this doesn't shape us the way it should, then we don't live with that sense of urgency. And we're not as, 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 as desperate to put Christ on display. You see, the two are connected. Be consumed with the return of Jesus Christ. Because the more you are, the more you will live each moment for him, knowing that his return is close. His return is near. So use the time that he's given you. That's what the New Testament gets at. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, which is actually a quotation from the book of Habakkuk. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, and that's why I have in quotations Habakkuk 2, 3. So, would someone read for us? Thank you, Flora. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. Can I ask the question first? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, when, you know, the, the scriptures are saying time is short, um, you know, the Lord is near. It's kind of like, I feel that the people who are saying these things are influenced by God. So it, it you know, um, to make a long story short, he's looking at time in terms of eternity, but they're looking at, uh, we as people are looking at uh, time in terms of our lifetime so you know for god to say through these people that you know time is near that that could be ten thousand years whereas if we were saying it it would be our lifetime i guess that's kind of a point i'm trying to make yeah yeah that's an excellent point you know we are are we are challenged in scripture scripture to try to consider things from God's perspective at times. God realizes that we are earthbound. God realizes that we are limited. God realizes we are finite. So we will always, always struggle to fully understand a limitless God, to understand an infinite God. You know, we are so small and so limited, but God through scripture invites us in even a small way to try to consider him as infinite and without limits 
and without constraint. So definitely when it comes to a concept like time, time is a limit that God put on creation. Remember when he created, one of the reasons for the sun, moon, and stars were to mark the times, to mark the days and the seasons, to mark the passing of weeks and months and years. God established that. And time is a boundary that humanity cannot ultimately move. You know, it makes a great movie to go back in time or to go forward in time, but that's absolutely a biblical impossibility because time is a boundary that God has set that is one of the constraints upon creation. Now, God is absolutely present in every moment of time. But because he is infinite, he is not even remotely constrained by time. And that's very hard for us to understand. But that's what scripture invites us to consider. So absolutely, there is time as we understand it. And we certainly want to understand it as an aspect of God's creation. So there is something good in understanding time as God created it as part of how he orders his creation. I mean, imagine if there were not the markers of time that God established in creation, it would start to move towards chaos. But because God is infinite and not constrained by time and stands outside of time, there are moments where the Lord invites us to try to consider things from his perspective. And certainly that is part of understanding. And Peter's gonna put it incredibly powerfully in a passage that we're going to read in a couple of minutes. So yeah, no, that's an excellent point. We certainly are constantly aware of our limit in comprehending God. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an open invitation to dive in deeper as often as we want to. And to me, you know, when we choose to do that, we usually just end up in a, in a place of absolute amazement and worship. You know, when we start to really try to comprehend God as he is, you know, you end up in places that are just, you know, wow, just absolute worship because he's God. You know, he's God. So definitely, Flora, when we're talking about issues related to time, we are invited as limited time-bound creatures to consider a God who stands outside of time and who is not constrained by time. And certainly from the perspective of eternity, as you were saying, you know, what is a hundred years? So, but the one thing that the Lord says is don't waste that. Don't waste the hundred years the Lord has given to you. Even though a hundred years is nothing compared to eternity, don't waste that. Don't waste any of the time that God has given you. But thank you so much for bringing that up. But do you have Hebrews yeah, ten thirty seven now? Yes, I do. For yet in thank a you. Very, you're welcome. for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him. Did I? I read two. I'm sorry. I read 38 too. That's fine. It's the Bible. It's good stuff. 
<laughs> now, if you turn to Habakkuk, you're going to have a hard time finding this in Habakkuk. And one of the most engaging and challenging biblical studies that I know of is looking at how New Testament authors quote and use the Old Testament. We know that what they were doing was a hundred percent Holy Spirit inspired, spot on, perfect interpretation. Because if it wasn't, it wouldn't be in the New Testament. But oftentimes, when you look at your reference and you go back and you're like, how did the author of Hebrews get that from Habakkuk 2 3? And what it invites you to do is really try to understand what was the connection the Spirit of God was making in the New Testament author to show them a new way of understanding that Old Testament passage. If you read Habakkuk chapter 2, it's talking about a vision that's coming. The prophet's to write it down, and if it seems to delay, wait for it. Well, the Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to say, actually, what that was really talking about was the return of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, yet a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. Okay? So again, if you're looking for an incredibly profound and rich and challenging biblical study, just start looking at how the Old Testament is used by New Testament authors. You know, look that up. Look that up, and you'll see a lot of times, wow, that's very different. Now, one of the things that was happening here is... The author of Hebrews was actually quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The book Habakkuk was originally written in Hebrew, but remember when we talked about Sheol and Hades, we learned that there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And sometimes the Greek is, is quite a bit different uh, than, say, your English translation. Your English Bible, when it's translating the Old Testament, is going from the Hebrew original. It's not going from a translation of a translation, because if you know anything about translation, the more translations you have in the process, the less accurate they become. So your English Old Testament or Spanish Old Testament, whichever you're reading, it's actually coming from the Hebrew. It's not coming from the Greek because the Greek is a translation of the Hebrew. So the author of Hebrews, though, the Old Testament that he had in front of him or the Old Testament that he knew in often cases would have been the Greek Old Testament. Because the whole reason that the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek in about 300 BC is because a lot of the Jewish world was becoming less competent in Hebrew. So they were unable to read Hebrew. They were unable to understand Hebrew. So it was like, you know, reading the Bible in, in, in a Slavic language. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So it was translated into Greek so that more and more of the, the Jewish world could understand the scriptures. But in some cases, the translation seems to be very, very different. But anyways, that's just a little aside. The point that's being made here is that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, the one who is coming, he's coming very soon. Very soon. And he will not delay. That's what the author of Hebrews wrote 2,000 years ago. So if that was what he expected 
of the return of Christ, we better not be sitting here 2,000 years later and having a more relaxed, lackadaisical, casual attitude to the return of Jesus Christ. If we are actually 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we better take seriously this imminence, this nearness, this soonness of the return of Jesus. Um, let's, you can read the James on your own, because I see time's racing away here. Uh, would someone read the last one for us there? First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Because this one is just so incredibly short and to the point. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. How does Peter describe the time in which he was living? First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. The end of all things is thousands of years in the future, so don't worry about it. No, the end of all things is near. That's what Peter understood about the time in which he was living. And again, does he say, be so consumed about the return of Jesus that you're no good in this life? No, as you are consumed with this being so close to the end of all things, be clear-minded and pray effectively. The more that we are consumed with the return of Jesus Christ, the much more likely we are to live each day for him. That's what the New Testament teaches. So Peter couldn't put it any more clearly, any more succinctly. The end of all things is near. You know, I, when I was a kid in a couple of cartoons, they used to have a guy with a sandwich board and one of, all, one of the cartoons on the street corner, you know, saying the end is near or the end of all things is near. And of course, he laughed and chuckled. Well, the truth of it is, that's right out of, that's right out of Peter. The end of all things is near. So in other words, we have got to live with an urgency. We have got to live with a sense of the time that we have is short. And so we better make full use of it. The return of Jesus Christ, it's, it's right there on the horizon. And that doesn't matter. It may be 4,000 years in the future. That doesn't matter. Near, imminent, soon, close, at hand, as the New Testament speaks of it, not speaking in terms of actual days and hours and months and years. It's not how the New Testament is looking at it. The New Testament is looking at, look, everything that the Old Testament was hoping for, boom, it started. It's like, imagine that all of the Old Testament had a stopwatch in their hand, but the button was not pressed until Jesus comes the first time. So there's all of this waiting, there's all of this longing, there's all of this hoping, stopwatch is ready to go, but the button's not pressed until Jesus comes the first time. Now the button is pressed. But the thing is, you have no idea when the button's going to be pressed a second time and the stopwatch is going to start and eternity begins. So just you have that sense that, hey, the stopwatch is running. It started when Jesus came 
But when Jesus comes again, he's putting his finger on the button and it stops and we're in eternity and there's no going back. That's the way we need to live. That's the way we need to live. There's this clicking talk. Not that, not that we're scared, not that we're stressed, but we sense the urgency, the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. That's how we live. Because the watch has started. The watch has started. And when Jesus comes, it stops. And all that's left is eternity. So make the most of the time that we have. Okay? Any, any questions or, or thoughts about this section? Does this make sense? This is one of the key and repeated teachings of the New Testament about the return of Jesus. Now, we're going to look at another one, which seems to completely contradict this. But obviously, there is value in understanding what the Bible teaches. Because now we're going to talk about the delay of Christ's return. And again, you can see how if you want to be skeptical, and if you want to try to poke holes in the Bible, you know, didn't the author of Hebrews just say, he who is coming will come quickly and he will not delay, then how can you in the very next breath talk about the delay? Well, this is what the New Testament puts in front of us. So again, to me, you know, I think there is a reasonable explanation for this. But at the end of the day, it all boils down to, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Scripture won't always be absolutely clear on every point all of the time to you. You're just, you're not that spiritual. You're not that smart. None of us are. But at that point, what are you going to do? Are you going to say this has mistakes? This has errors? This has problems? This is just a human book? Or are you going to say, okay, God, I don't understand all of this, and I'm not sure I can explain all of this. And right now, this seems to kind of be a little bit in conflict, but I trust you. Truth is not true because my mind can fully comprehend it. Truth is true because you declare it. And so initially, I agree. We just talked about the, the nearness, the soonness, right on the, 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 the horizon there is the return of Jesus. How can we in the very next breath talk about the delay? Well, because the New Testament talks about both. And simply what the New Testament challenges us to do is to hold on to both. To hold on to the return of being Christ very soon, and yet fully realizing that from our perspective, it may seem like he is delayed. And just like the multiple passages we looked at before, there's actually a lot of passages that talk about this. Um, so the first one we have down is Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And verses 45 to 51. Jesus is telling a parable here 
talking about his return. And he's using the parable of a landowner who is going away and entrusts his property to his servants. Well, that sounds a lot like Jesus coming and trusting us with the mission of the gospel and returning to the Father. So in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 45, it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. The master has gone away. The master has entrusted the care of his property to his servants. When the master returns, what will he find his servants doing? I tell you to the faithful servant, I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. The delay. Jesus himself is embedding his own apparent delay in this parable. The wicked servant says, oh, my master's delaying. My master's away too long. And so he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So right there, Jesus is telling a parable that his return may be delayed. So on the one hand, there's a constant sense of urgency. There's a constant sense of immediacy. We live each day as if Christ were coming back soon because he is. But we realize that doesn't necessarily mean it's happening literally tomorrow or it's happening in my lifetime. So we absolutely also understand there is the reality of the delay. So what does that mean? That means you live your entire life with that sense of urgency and a desire to obey. Because you don't want to be like that servant who looked at the delay and said, man, Jesus is coming back in 3,000 years, so I'm just going to live for myself today. I'm just going to do what I want today because I don't have to worry about that for a long time. That is the wicked servant who is caught unexpectedly by the return of Christ. But yeah, Elliot, you have a comment or a question? Yeah, there are some who said that uh, that verse 51 is the evidence that if you're in sin, when, if you're a believer, and in sin, when Christ comes back, then you're bound for hell. I've always doubted that. I wanted to know how you interpret that. Yeah, I, I think that probably is not the correct way of understanding that. Because again, you know, I think that kind of flies in the face of other things that we absolutely know to be true about the gospel. But on the other hand, I don't ever want to soften the type of warning that Jesus is giving here. 
And, you know, at, at some point, we're going to talk about the danger of apostasy, which is falling away from the Lord, which is a real threat in the New Testament, because the New Testament actually talks about it somewhat frequently. So, you know, I would say, which one of us as believers is going to be sin-free at the moment when Christ returns? Well, none of us. You know, sin is something that we are continuing to battle on a daily basis. But that being said, you know, we shouldn't be using that as an excuse. What we should be looking at that parable and saying is, wow, when Jesus comes again, I want to be doing what he wants me to do. But no, I think it's, I think it completely undermines far more significant truths of the gospel that, you know, we are saved by grace, by faith and putting our trust in Christ. And that if we are genuinely walking that out, still struggling with sin at the moment that Christ returns, that's not going to undermine the grace of Christ that has saved us. But on the other hand, if we start to become cynical and skeptical and our faith starts to get put in jeopardy, which is what I would say is the status of these wicked servants, it's not just that they really are trying hard to please the master and they slip up, you know, they get really frustrated and they, you know, no, these guys are like absolutely abandoning the master, the desires of the master and completely indulging themselves and living for themselves. That's the way I would understand that. And for them, yeah, absolutely. When Jesus Christ comes, it's going to be a terrifying day. But if we genuinely love the Lord, and if we genuinely have put our faith in his grace, that's not going to be undermined by the ongoing struggle with sin. It's not going to be undermined by the daily battle we have with sin. Because all of us as believers are struggling with sin. So I think the category that Jesus is pointing here is different. It's the folks who are completely walking away from and disregarding the will of their master and living completely selfishly and self-indulgently. For them, when the master returns, that's going to be a horrific day. Does that kind of help to answer that? Because that's actually a really good question you bring up. Good. The next Matthew 25, 1 to 13, we're not going to read that just because it's already 8.15. That's one that you're probably super familiar with. It's actually what comes next. So Jesus is certainly hitting on a theme. This is the parable of the ten virgins. Remember, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, and he delays. In fact, he comes in the middle of the night, and so they got sleepy and fell asleep, and Five were prepared and five were not. But here again, Jesus is absolutely telling a parable that says, my return may seem delayed. And you may be tempted to get sleepy. And you may be tempted to be unprepared. So the delay, the delay of the return of Christ does not ultimately undermine the nearness of it, even though that sounds completely self-contradictory. This is the language that the New Testament uses. So this is the language that we have to adopt. The last one, let's actually read this. This was part of what Flora was referring to. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 4 and 8 to 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 4 and 8 to 9. If someone wants to volunteer to read that, that's great. 
Thank you, Howard. Knowing this, first of all, the scopos will come in the last days of scoping, following their own simple desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then eight and nine. Can we read that? Yeah, please. Same chapter. Mm -hmm. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. So in the first part of this passage, Peter uses a phrase, in these last days. I remember we talked about that in our introduction to eschatology, that that actually is talking about the entirety of the New Testament era. It's not the last day. Remember, the last day is the moment that Jesus Christ returns. So the last day is the entire New Testament period. And last days, Peter says, there's going to be guys scoffing. And they're going to be saying, hey, where is that promised return of your Savior? 2,000 years ago, Jesus said he was coming again, but he hasn't come yet. And so there is going to be ridicule. There is going to be scoffing directed at us because of what? Because we are waiting. We are waiting for something that hasn't happened yet. And so we are going to be the objects of ridicule and scorn and derision because we are waiting for something that hasn't happened yet. We are waiting for something that we are convinced is very soon. We are waiting for something that we are saying is right near at hand. But 2,000 years later, it hasn't happened yet. So it's going to be very easy to look at us and say we're idiots, to say we're foolish, to say we're confused, to say we're mistaken. That's what Peter was saying. But then in verses 8 and 9, Peter gives us this incredible look into the timelessness of God. And he says, don't forget, with the Lord, the day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So exactly what Flora was saying in her comment earlier, these things are not at all, you know, long or dragged out to the Lord because time is nothing to him. Time is nothing to him. And then verse nine, an incredible point that Paul make, Peter makes, excuse me, is look, in this season of delay, in this season of waiting, God is being incredibly good. He's not being slow. He's not running late. He's not being lazy or distracted or not organized enough to be on time. In fact, delay is because in this season of waiting, he's giving people an opportunity to repent and be So another thing that we need to understand delay is 
It's an opportunity for repentance. So on the one hand, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That urgency that, in fact, ends the entire New Testament. That's how the book of Revelation ends. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And he says, lo, I am coming quickly. But on the other hand, we can also say, well, praise you, Jesus, that you didn't come today because that gives some folks an opportunity to get saved. You see, those prayers don't contradict each other. Those prayers complement each other. Lord Jesus, come quickly, come quickly. But if you don't come today, thank you that you gave somebody an opportunity to come to know you today. That's what the New Testament teaches. Urgency and delay, imminent but waiting. And again, we may wait our entire lives. We may not be the generation that lives to see the return of Jesus Christ. And that's okay. That doesn't diminish the certainty of it. That doesn't change the posture of our life. In other words, if we could know, and it's impossible for us to know, if we could know that Jesus was coming in 2023 or that Jesus was coming in 2067, it should not change how we live today one iota. Years ago, they asked the, the German reformer Martin Luther, if you knew absolutely that Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? Does anyone know how Martin Luther answered that? They asked him, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? He said, well, he said it in a, in a more creative way. He said, I'd pay my taxes and I'd plant a tree. Now, of course, initially you might say, well, that's really bizarre. But basically what he was saying is I would live my life as I'm living it right now. Because hopefully I'm living my life as if Jesus could come tomorrow. I wouldn't do anything radically different. And it was really quite a profound as well as a humorous answer. If you knew Jesus Christ was coming tomorrow, what would you do? I'd pay my taxes and I'd plant a tree. Because he was saying, I would simply go about living my life as I've been living it up to this point. That's how we should be living. That's how we should be living. With that incredible sense of the urgency, the shortness of the time, and yet realizing we may not see it in our lifetime. The delay is possible as well. Okay? Any thoughts or questions about this? Yeah, please, Abelio. In Mat Matthews, oh. 24, 34 speaks, uh, Jesus speaks about uh, generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just wondering how should we interpret that because many uh, generations has passed already. And he said uh, this thing. So uh, um, explain. That's an excellent question. We talked earlier that there are critical biblical scholars who believe that Jesus was mistaken, that the Apostle Paul was mistaken, that both of them thought his return would be within a generation, so maybe 30 or 40 years. 
And there are definitely a couple of passages that are pretty challenging. The passage that Abelio just referred to, Matthew 24, 34, is one of those passages. Just to, to read it, Abelio quoted it pretty well, but just to read it, it says in Matthew 24, verse 34, um, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, if you read earlier in Matthew 24, he certainly is talking about his return. If you look at, say, verse 29, it says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky, just as he was taken from them. Remember in Acts chapter one with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So if you read that, and then you read verse 34, which says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. You can see how that's, that's not necessarily easy because clearly Jesus is making a reference to his second coming in verses 29 to 31. So how can he in verse 34 say this generation is not going to pass away? Well, a couple of different things that you can do with that. One is you can say that when Jesus is using the word generation, he's talking about the entirety of the age. Sometimes when we see the word generation used in the Bible, like the Apostle Paul says, this is a crooked and perverse generation. I don't think he meant that when that group of people died, that the next one would be fine. I think he was talking about the entirety of the New Testament age and describing them as a crooked and perverse generation. So that's possible that's what Jesus means. That in other words, we are going to continue until the return of Jesus Christ. I think that's possible, but I think maybe that's not the best understanding of this. If we look a little earlier, verse 32, it says, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Okay, now what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of summarizing what he had been teaching previously. And what he is summarizing is things that he says are signs of his return. Things that he says are signs of his return. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Some of these are very familiar to us. So wars and rumors of war and famine and earthquake apostasy, tribulation, the gospel being preached to all the nations. These are things that Jesus mentions earlier in Matthew 24. And basically what he says is these are all evidences that I'm coming again. And so what he says here is like, you look at the fig tree and you know that when it starts to bear leaves, you know that the time for it to bear fruit is not far behind. So in other words, he's saying you need to understand what's going on around you as pointing to the assurance of my return. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying with the fig tree. 
Then picking it up in verse 33, he says, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So Jesus is saying, when you see all of these things, meaning wars, the earthquakes, the rumors of wars, the famine, the apostasy, the persecution, the tribulation, the advance of the gospel. Jesus in verse 33 says, look, when you see all of these things, then what do you know? What does he say in verse 33? You know that it is near, it is right at the door. What? What is near? What is right at the door? His return. So when you see all these things, has he returned? No. When you see all these things, they are his evidence to creation that his return is very near. It is right at the door. So when Jesus is saying, when you see these things, he's talking about everything except his actual return. Because if his return was included in this, it wouldn't be near, it would, wouldn't be right at the door, it would have happened. Do you see that? So in verse 33, he says, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, that it is right at the door. So in other words, Jesus is challenging us in whatever generation we live, when we look at what's going on around us, we should be hearing the Lord scream, this is evidence that I'm coming. But it's not yet. It's near. It's at the door. So now when you read verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. What things? Everything except his return. Every one of the signs that assures humanity that he is coming did those things begin the moment he returned to the father yes absolutely so the things that jesus is talking about in verse 34 are probably everything that he is talking about in matthew 24 that are indicative of this age in which we live that guarantee us that assure us that point to his return but not including the return itself so all of those things apostasy and tribulation and famine and war and earthquake and all of these things and the advance of the gospel did that generation see all of those things yes jesus doesn't say and this generation will not pass away until all these things happen and conclude he says this generation will not pass away till all these things happen and there's an open-endedness to it. I think that's the best way of understanding. Does that make sense? If, if not, we'll, we'll talk about it more. But does that make sense? Because Abelio, this is definitely one of those places where it's challenging to make sense of what Jesus is saying. But at some point in the future, we're going to take a deeper dive into Matthew 24. And these things that we've been talking about sometimes are referred to as the signs of the times. These indicators that Jesus gives that assure us that he is coming. That's what he's talking about primarily in Matthew 24. And he also is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which in fact did happen in that period of time. And that was an incredible example of this 
upheaval in creation that's an indication that he's coming. So I think that's the best way of understanding what Jesus says there. That generation did not pass away without seeing all of those signs beginning to take place. And remember, those signs were taking place didn't mean that the second coming had already happened. It meant that it was right at the door. And he didn't say those signs would come to completion. He just said these things would take place and they are continuing to take place. And again, that ties in with what we were before. Because that generation experienced those signs, they should look at the return of Christ as soon. But because we are also experiencing all of those signs, apostasy, tribulation, the outgoing of Antichrist, famine, war, earthquake, we should also believe, wow, the return is very soon. So actually what Jesus says right here ties in with what we had been saying earlier as well. But that definitely is one of those places where it looks like Jesus is saying, this generation is going to see my return. It certainly looks like that. But I think as you do a little bit deeper dive into it, which we just did, I think there's an, a better way of understanding what Jesus is saying. That in fact, all he's saying is when you see these things taking place, which that generation saw, all that it means is his return is right at the door, which is what he says in verse 33. It's right at the door. And that's what he wants us to believe and how he wants us to live. But does that make sense? Okay, because that's an excellent point. There's two others in Matthew that are like that, that are initially really challenging because it looks like a mistake is being made or confusion is taking place. But obviously, we, we've already said there's no way we're ever going to assume that. But that's one of those places that we've got to do a little bit more careful examination of to make sure we're understanding it rightly. So thank you so much for bringing that up. So. You know, what we mean about like in Peter, about Jesus talking about his delay for people to come to repentance. Yes. You know, you were talking about, about the wars, famines, you know, just the killings and everything else. You know, as people, we look at we look at that as a reason for Christ to come. I'm sure he would look at it as even a greater reason for his delay. For people come. I'm not sure I'm tracking with you. Explain that. I said, we, as people, we look at that you know, that's the reason Christ should come back right now. I'm sure Christ would look at it as a, even a greater reason for his delay. So more of these people could get saved for they could turn to repentance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that the scriptures teach about judgment is that judgment actually provides an opportunity for repentance. And one of the reasons why God brings about judgment before final judgment we don't have it up here anymore, but we had final judgment up here. Because once final judgment comes, it's too late for everyone. I mean, once final judgment. So, so why does God judge at all before final judgment? Why doesn't he just wait and not judge anyone or not judge anything until final judgment? Well, obviously, there's a, a, a multi answer to that. But one of the reasons is, is because any judgment that is not final judgment is an opportunity, an opportunity for repentance. Remember in the gospel of Luke, Jesus says, look, you know, you heard about that tower that fell and killed 18 people. 
You know, do you think they were worse sinners than you? No. I tell you, repent, or the same thing will happen to you. So Jesus was looking at this act of judgment that killed 18 people, and he was speaking to those who were alive in his audience and said, look, this is an opportunity for you to repent. So anything that's short of final judgment is exactly what you're saying. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for repentance. And C.S. Lewis talked about it in The Problem of Pain. He said, you know, one of the ways of understanding suffering as the judgment of God is God trying to get the attention of a creation that doesn't want to listen. You know, if you are super, super attentive to somebody, but if you're totally distracted, sometimes even if you shout at someone, they don't hear you. So what C.S. Lewis, the point that he was making is that one way of understanding judgment is God in his mercy screaming at creation, repent, I'm here. That's definitely one way of understanding judgment short of final judgment. Absolutely. So no, the, the point you're making is a good one. And of course, you know, that, that incredible tapestry that is reality where we see, you know, grace extended and others judged and killed, you know, that, that obviously is ultimately the infinite will of God. You know, why are some people, you know, live a hundred years and others don't? That's Psalm 73. That's what Ed was challenging us with on, on Sunday. But definitely from a, a broader perspective, if you look at judgment, it's an opportunity for repentance. You know, if I look at some measure of judgment, it should wake me up out of my spiritual stupor and say, wow, I've got to repent. God's giving me an opportunity to get my life straight with him. I better take advantage of it. So absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Helen. So, well, we're a little bit over time. Um, we still have a couple other of, of, of really key points to get at, but just so we're not left completely hanging, you can see it. Another thing that Jesus clearly, clearly teaches is that nobody knows the day or hour of his return. Nobody knows. And nobody will know. So if you ever see a book where a guy is trying to tell you the month, the day, and the year, just leave it on the shelf. If you ever hear anyone trying to narrow it down, just ignore it. Jesus so clearly says, nobody knows. Nobody knows. That's how we live a life of constant expectation. Again, just imagine in your flesh, if you knew Jesus was coming in February, you'd be like, oh, I still have four months. And, oh, I still have three months. Oh, I still have two months. You would, in your flesh, sinfully take advantage of that. So imagine if the Lord told us, yeah, I'm coming back in, you know, 2026 or whatever. Well, of course, the Lord realizes that, that we would sinfully in our flesh take advantage of that. Nobody knows. Now, again, one of the challenges that we face is that Jesus clearly tells us the things that are indicators of his arrival. So what people try to do is they look at these things like famines and earthquakes and wars and apostasy and they say well if, if, if jesus is giving us all of these signs then there must be a way to figure out when he's coming nope 
Jesus gives us all these signs and says, but you have no idea when I'm coming. And so anyone who's trying to lay out a clear like schedule or map or timeline for the turn of Jesus Christ, I believe is completely misunderstanding the New Testament. It's, it's understandable because there's so much that talks about what is going to transpire in this age before the return of Christ. It's understandable that people try to get you know their, their charts and their graphs and all of this but it completely undermines the point that Jesus makes so clearly. No one knows the day or the hour. So the signs of the time are not for us to get a calendar or a schedule or a timeline or a plan. The signs of the time are to remind us that it could be at any moment, and we better live that way. And that's, of course, the last point that we've been getting at that we'll get into in a couple of weeks. Therefore, we are vigilant. We keep watch. We are spiritually alert. We are clear-minded. We are sober. You know, all these words that the New Testament uses, it's all connected to the return of Jesus Christ. All of these challenges, all of these calls of how we are to live our life, it's all connected to the return of Jesus Christ. That's why we pray. That's why we are spiritually focused. That's why we are doing everything that the Lord asks of us. Why? Because he's coming. He's coming soon, and we don't know when it is. So we better live each moment that he gives us for him. Okay? Well, I apologize. We went over a little bit, but let me close this out here with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And, and Jesus, we just want to thank you that you are coming again. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us, myself included, would just find incredible hope and comfort for any circumstance, any circumstance in which we find ourselves. May we always be able to declare with great hope, Jesus, you are coming. You are coming. And Lord, that is just so much greater than anything that tries to tear us down or destroy us. So help us live with, with your sense of spiritual urgency. Help us to take advantage of the time that you've given us to live for you. Because Lord, at that moment when you return, it'll be over. We will be in eternity. So help us to make good use of all of the days that you've given us. And we ask these things, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen.